Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can take a look at the mental health and personality characteristics of Edmund Kemper. Ed Kemper was referred to by the media as the co-ed killer. He's a well-known serial killer. He was mostly active in 1972 and 1973. Now, Ed Kemper is a real person, so just a reminder, I'm not diagnosing anybody here, not him or anyone else involved in this case, only speculating about what could be happening in a case like this. So, the Ed Kemper case is kind of interesting because the popular mental health professions, counseling, social work, psychology, psychiatry, look at Ed Kemper a little differently based on theoretical orientations. So, those practitioners who have a psychodynamic orientation, so they use a modality that was originally based on the work of Sigmund Freud, they tend to look at the Edmund Kemper case as being a case that involves the relationship between a killer and his mother, that that relationship was really central to what he did. Now, individuals who use other theoretical modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy may look at this case a little differently. So, I'm a counselor and I tend to like cognitive behavioral therapy, but I understand psychodynamic therapy fairly well, so my conceptualization borrows from both schools of thought. I'll go through the timeline of this case and then take a look at the mental health and personality factors that may have been at work. So some of the information here comes from interviews of Kemper, and he is someone who lied quite a bit, so that's important to keep in mind. Some of his accounts of events have been disputed. In 1948, we see that Ed Kemper was born in Burbank, California. His parents separated when he was about one year old. His mother moved to Montana with Kemper and his two sisters in 1957, when he was nine years old. The mother remarried a year and a half later. The second husband left her. She remarried again two years later. Kemper's mother was particularly harsh and cruel. He was severely punished. He was locked in a cellar. She was often intoxicated. She would ridicule him and berate him, telling him that no woman would ever love him, 
and calling him names. At about age 10, Kemper killed and then decapitated the family cat, and he entertained thoughts at that same time of killing family members, specifically an older sister. He would follow women down the street and fantasize about how they loved him and would never reject him. When he was 13, he killed another family cat, and this cat appeared to favor his sister. So that could have been one of the motives for that crime. He had two life-threatening experiences when he was a child. His older sister attempted to push him in front of a train, so that's pretty scary. And later on, he almost drowned when she pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool. Right, So we're seeing kind of a pattern emerging here in terms of how Kemper was treated. When Kemper was around 14 or 15, he ran away from his mother's home in Montana to his father's residence in California. He was only there a short while before his father sent him to live with his paternal grandparents. Now we see different stories about this with different sources. Some of the sources say he was 15 when he ran away from home, and some of the sources say that his father sent him back to his mother and the mother sent him to live with the paternal grandparents. But either way, we know that the paternal grandparents lived in California on an isolated ranch. Evidently, the grandmother was just as cruel as the mother. A year later, in 1964, when Kemper was 15 years old, he shot and killed his grandmother after a verbal argument, and then he waited for his grandfather to return home from running an errand and murdered him as well. After the murders were complete, he called his mother, and she told him to call the police, and that's what he did. He would later say to the police that he just wanted to see what it was like to kill his grandmother. That was his motive for this crime. And that he killed his grandfather so that his grandfather would be spared the pain of finding out that his wife was dead. Kemper was convicted of homicide. Clinicians that evaluated him and treated him indicated that Kemper had paranoid schizophrenia. He was sent to a maximum security mental hospital. At the hospital, he was diagnosed with personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type, so this is less severe than paranoid schizophrenia. The staff there did not believe that he had psychosis or disorganized thinking, and those two symptoms are very common with schizophrenia. While at this facility, he had an IQ test scoring 136. Later on, he had another one, and he scored 145. He was cooperative and helpful while at that facility, even learning how to administer psychometric tests to other inmates. He was released from this facility in 1969 on the day he turned 21. He returned to live with his mother, although the clinicians that treated him advised against that. She now lived in California, and they didn't get along well at all. She berated him for failing to reach a sufficient social level, so she was unhappy with his status. I find this peculiar for a couple of reasons. She didn't seem too upset that Kemper killed her ex-husband's parents. I mean, that wasn't an issue for her. She was more concerned with the social status. And I think the other thing that strikes me as odd here is, what status was he supposed to have achieved? He had been in a secure mental facility for the years prior to this. So I'm not sure what he was supposed to do there. I'm not sure what type of status one achieves in that setting that would impress her. But either way, I just find that kind of interesting. While living with his mother, he had hopes of being a police officer. But Kemper was six foot nine, which was too tall for their requirements. He still hung out with local police officers at a bar, though. They knew him well. He would go there quite often. Now, he worked several jobs and eventually ended up with the 
California Highway Department in 1971, and he moved out of his mother's apartment for a short time. Kemper started picking up hitchhikers around this time, allegedly picking up about 150. He would pick them up, take them to wherever they wanted to go, and drop them off unharmed. Then this behavior changed. We see in May 1972, he picked up two 18-year-old females who were hitchhiking. He took them to a secluded area, and he murdered both of them. Then in September 1972, he picks up a 15-year-old female hitchhiker. He murders her and leaves her body in the trunk of his car as he gets a few drinks. The next day, so the next day after this murder in September 1972, he was able to convince the mental health clinicians who were working on his case because he was on parole that he was not a danger to society. Just two months later, in November of 1972, his juvenile criminal history was expunged. So this was after he killed three people, which of course they didn't know about, but also two people, his paternal grandparents, who they did know about. Now moving to January 1973, he was back living with his mother at this time. He killed another 18-year-old female and hid her body at his mother's house, disposing of it the next day. But he buried the victim's head in his mother's backyard. February 1973, Kemper gets into an argument with his mother. He leaves the house angry. He picks up two female hitchhikers. One was 20 and one was 23. He shot and killed both of them with a 22 caliber automatic pistol. He decapitated them and brought their bodies back to his mother's house, again disposing of the bodies the next day. Then we move to April 1973. Kemper was at his mother's house when his mother came home. At this time, Kemper was 24 and his mother was 52. After she fell asleep, Kemper attacked her with a hammer and a knife. He decapitated her. He screamed at her head for about an hour and threw darts at it. He went out to get some drinks at a bar. He came back and invited one of his mother's friends to come over. This was a 59-year-old female. When she came over, he strangled her and put her body in a closet in that house. Kemper fled in a motor vehicle. He was armed, but then he stopped in Colorado and he called the police and attempted to confess to the murders, but they didn't believe him. So finally, he asked for an officer that he believed would be distrustful, would be suspicious of him, and he confessed to that officer, and eventually the police believed him. The police were sent out, and they arrested him. In November of 1973, he was sentenced to seven years to life for each count to be served concurrently, which technically made him eligible for parole at some point in the future. At the time I'm making this video, Kemper is still in prison, and evidently he's a model prisoner. He has been denied parole several times, and he has waived his right to several of his parole hearings. So now moving to the mental health and personality factors we see in this case. So taking a look at the five-factor model, I would say that Ed Kemper is high. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.
So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. And openness to experience. He was intellectually curious and had a lot of fantasies, probably somewhere around mid-range for conscientiousness, low extroversion. We see mid to low agreeableness and extremely low neuroticism. Just as is the case with many serial killers, Ed Kemper had the ability to appear to have different personality traits on a short-term basis. For example, he could appear highly agreeable, and sometimes he appeared to have high neuroticism. Now we see with the majority of his murders, the ones that started in 1972, Kemper decapitated his victims and performed sexual acts with their decapitated bodies and their heads. We see these same types of post-mortem activities with other serial killers like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. Near the beginning of the video, I talked about how this is a popular case for psychodynamic conceptualization. And of course, the main reason has to do with the role that the mother played in Ed Kemper's life. Ed Kemper's mother was reported to be incredibly abusive in so many ways. There's been a lot of speculation that she may have had borderline personality disorder, or at least borderline traits. This may or may not be the case, but based on her behavior toward Kemper, she would seem to have narcissistic and antisocial traits. But no matter how one looks at this, all of these disorders represent cluster B personality pathology. An interesting note here, later when she worked at a college when Kemper and her lived in California, her colleagues reported that she was easy to get along with. So really, again, it's hard to know what's going on here because so much information about the mother came from Kemper. But moving back to the cluster B pathology. The cluster B personality pathology is important for a few reasons, but two really stand out for me. Reason one, it would appear that Ed Kemper meets many of the criteria for antisocial personality disorder. So perhaps there was a genetic component here. Reason two, when looking at the mother-son dynamic, when the mother has cluster B personality pathology, we see that often the son is unable to express negative emotions to the mother and unable to act out in a violent way to the mother. The theory here would be that there was repressed anger toward the mother, so anger that was pushed into the unconscious mind, and this anger was displaced onto the victims. So looking at this as a continuum, we see it starts with expressing negative feelings toward the mother and moves over toward violence. We see that when Kemper is young, He has trouble even arguing with his mother. He doesn't feel like it's safe to express emotions like sadness or anger. So his anger is converted or, again, displaced onto the family pets. Now, eventually, we see that Kemper is able to express some negative emotions toward the mother, but he really can't cope with it too well, 
so he runs away to the father. Essentially, he gets rejected again, and we see that he takes this desire to harm his mother and displaces this onto the paternal grandparents. After he's released from custody from these crimes, we see that Kemper and his mother get into a number of heated arguments, but he's still unable to act in a violent way toward the mother. He had a desire to do it, but he couldn't do it. And now we see he commits six murders, directing his anger toward those victims. But this really doesn't take care of the murderous rage. During this time, he grabs his mother and throws her onto the bed and threatens to kill her. So again, we see him moving from expressing negative emotions to threats and to violence. Eventually, all of these safeguards are removed in his relationship with his mother. He decides to kill her one week before he did, so his murder was premeditated, and then he follows through with his plan. We see the rage during and after the murder, screaming at the mother's head, throwing darts at it. He had all this anger built up. He displaced that onto the murder victims, but that didn't actually remove the rage. Rather, it just delayed his expression of rage toward the mother. So this is a really important point. If displacement was truly going on in a complete sense, the rage would be gone. Even after Kemper kills his mother, we see that he kills one more victim. He allegedly did this to create a narrative where his mother and the last victim would be on vacation. So he did this to escape the consequences of his crime. After this, he contemplated continuing his murder spree. So again, we see that that rage really doesn't get resolved, right? Even the homicide of his mother, which is what he thought he was resisting, didn't really change much with the rage. Another key feature that stands out with Kemper was his IQ. When he was first tested in custody, it was 136, later 145. I find this a little peculiar. IQ tests usually aren't given repeatedly, right? They're not used for like pre-test and post-test. You wouldn't see somebody come into a study or into a treatment facility and get an IQ test and then get another one three, six months later or a year later or really ever again, right? So for him to be tested twice with an expensive instrument like this, again, I find this a little unusual. It might have been that the staff was really impressed by the first score, so they ordered another IQ test because they thought it was interesting, or perhaps they thought that something was wrong with that first administration. We also see evidence that he learned how to score some of the psychometric tests when he was incarcerated, so it could have been that he memorized some of the items on the IQ test to boost his score the second time around. But either way, assuming that the 136 was his actual IQ, this is exceptionally high, 2.4 standard deviations above the mean. This puts him a little bit above the 99th percentile. Now we see some evidence of his intelligence in his attempts to cover up his crimes, but at the same time we also see a lot of impulsivity and taking a number of unnecessary risks. There were many opportunities where he could have been caught, including the time he was pulled over for having a taillight out when he had dead bodies in the trunk. We also see that the police came to confiscate one of his guns, a 44 Magnum, and they didn't know that he had a 22 caliber automatic. That's the gun he used in the murder, so if they had found that, it seems fairly likely he would have been caught. Kemper also manifested quite a bit of pro-social behavior in prison, enough so that he was able to deceive the clinicians when he was younger and be labeled a model prisoner during his incarceration after his second arrest and convictions. We see a lot of superficial charm 
And during the time when he was committing the murders, we see he hung out at a bar with police officers. A number of those police officers and other people in the criminal justice system who interacted with him really liked him. We see that Kemper said in an interview once that he came in out of the cold, making it seem like he was aware that what he was doing was wrong, that it was bad, and he did the right thing by calling the police and confessing. In addition, we see that he waived his right to several parole hearings. I mentioned that before. I think this has led some people to believe that Kemper is safe to be released, or at least he's been reformed. A much better argument could be made that Kemper is still quite dangerous. I'll go through the points that some people have brought up here. There's this idea that because the relationship with the mother is over because of that murder, that Kemper wouldn't hurt anyone else, even though he committed a murder after that murder. So the argument we hear is that the crisis was resolved, right? So again, with the mother's homicide, Kemper shouldn't go on to do anything wrong. Well, there are two reasons why this isn't the case. First, a rage that deep doesn't get resolved with the mother's murder. If anything, that would only increase the rage. Second, personality traits are tendencies. They're tendencies we tend to see throughout the lifespan. Personality traits just don't change because of a particular event. Once they are set, they're not really influenced too much by environmental factors. In terms of the fact that he turned himself in, he had just murdered his mother and a friend of hers. Again, he was trying to set up the story to make it look like they were on vacation, so to make it look like he didn't commit a crime. So he had a connection to the victims, and he knew that he would be a suspect for those murders. Kemper knew that whether he turned himself in or not, he was going to get caught. So I don't think that really matters too much. Now, in terms of the parole hearings, Kemper is never going to be released from prison. He knew he would never be released when he was sentenced. So this idea that he's really reformed, he's a reformed murderer who's trying to do the right thing by waiving his right to the parole hearings, those hearings are simply academic. No actual release from prison will ever occur because of those hearings. Kemper killed 10 people, right? So again, no chance of parole. I can't ever imagine that happening no matter how long he lives. Kemper is one of the most famous serial killers, probably because he's done so many interviews and he's helped people write books about him. He's clearly quite intelligent, and I think that helps him to be popular. But I think his relationship with his mother is what really stands out from a mental health and personality perspective. And I think that's why this case is really so interesting to analyze and why it's attracted so much attention in terms of case conceptualization. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy. Interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood? Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.